0: So um, let's start by opening the floor to some questions from last time. Whatever's on your mind, whatever still needs to be clarified. We're obviously going to be doing some review today of desire, demand, need, and the like. We're going to be talking about um, the name of the father, paternal function, this little fee and minus fee that we were working on last time. Fantasy, anxiety, and finally in seminar 10 with chapters 5 through 8, we get a little bit of sadism with this famous divine dictum to enjoy exclamation point, which for those of you who are readers of Lacan and Freud know that this is the superego's basic commandment is enjoy exclamation point. Emphasis on the exclamation point here because you can see the jouissance of the big other here they enjoy giving you the dictum not surprisingly it's also an order that you cannot satisfy which is why its source is usually the superego that's that part of you that loves to see you fail and flop around mine is the same way they are all the same way okay so that interlude aside questions from last time concepts to clarify
1: Can I just ask a question about the style of Lacan? Sort of, um, why does he talk like that? Is this just the linguistic barrier? Because I became interested in French because of Lacan. I was hoping once I master the French language, which I still haven't, but I hope that once I understand French language, I will find out that's how all French people talk, but then I realize it's totally not the case. So. <laughs> Why does he talk in convoluted way? He never dwells on one subject and explain it thoroughly, like what you're doing. He jumped, he, like, he's cycling through different topics, dropping lines here and there. And then was he somehow trying to put us all through uh, cliffhangers so we could keep coming back to their seminar and nothing will make sense until you finish the entire lecture? Is that the goal?
0: I don't think so although I do believe that he was um, quite the show person and really did enjoy leaving people hanging and definitely wanted students to come back and certainly thought that um, that to get the most out of his seminars would be to attend year after year you have to also remember that he's primarily training clinicians even though he's doing a lot of philosophical and literary work he, he, when he looks out into his audience, he thinks as though I'm seeing clinicians to be. And some, in, in many cases, clinicians already um, very well accomplished. Um, as for why he talks the way he talks, so here we're just dealing with his work in the seminars and not in his writings. But if you've dipped, if you've dipped into a Cree, you know that his writings are even more difficult and just as elusive, they're just denser. So the way that his communication (laughs) worked was he would generate ideas in the seminar, work them out live, and then usually take those ideas and condense them into an essay that would then appear in a Cree. So usually you can read a seminar or two and then stumble into a Lacan essay and see him really trying to crystallize a lot of the concepts that he's working out in the seminar. The seminars can definitely be meandering and things like that, but so also is the dream. There's a very real sense in which what Lacan is trying to do in keeping with his surrealist roots, and I would suggest that those are one of two major roots for Lacanian thought, the other being Hegelianism as understood by Kojev in particular, who was Lacan's teacher in the 30s. But surrealism was a great influence to Lacan, and I would suggest that it's a great way to read some of the seminars to read him as trying to perform the unconscious the way a surrealist might. <clears throat> so remember that part of what he's doing in training analysts is training people to listen, and this recurs throughout all of his writings. A great emphasis on listening, listening to the analysand's speech as though reading a musical score. And so he was training people, not just to master the concepts and the math themes, but also to learn to listen like an analyst. And as a result, in order to help them do that, he oftentimes tried to speak like a patient. And so if you move forward into like seminar 23 or something on the symptom, where he's writing about Joyce Lacan's at the end of his career, you don't even see that much speech anymore. You see a series of diagrams he'd often show up with a line of rope and just tie knots for people and then diagram the knots so there's almost there's a retreat from speech even in the later work so if you think he's elusive now in the middle of his stuff wait till you get to the later stuff um i I think it's terrific all of his work i think it's wonderful because it's organic And that's another thing, Xinghua, that I would hold in mind as you get into these texts and you're wondering what the heck is going on. He's experimenting. He's oftentimes developing this stuff live. Yeah, he has some notes, but he's very much experimenting. So, for instance, the formulas that he develops in the early part of seminar 10, which we've been reading, he doesn't really come back to those formulas. He was testing those out, messing around with the number zero. And doing some pretty good work with it, but then he's pretty much done. So there are some concepts and tables and diagrams in Lacan that start strong, but then he just drops them. A great essay in which to see this model, I believe, perfected is the essay that coincides with the seminar on anxiety. This is his essay on the subversion of the subject and the dialectic of desire in the Freudian unconscious. All of this stuff starts to develop for him in the late 50s and kind of peaks in the early 60s. I think it's some of his best stuff, but what's great about this essay is you can see him building the graph of desire. One of his most substantial graphs in my view is the graph of desire. And you can see him in this essay showing you, okay, here's like the basic graph, graph one. Here's graph two. Here's how I get from graph two to the completed graph. He's showing you how he builds an idea. And, you know, making matters even more challenging is that because he's an organic thinker and because he's learning from Anna Lisanne's and his own work as he goes, a lot of concepts change over time. So what Lacan means by the real when he first introduces it is going to be even more developed and different by the time he's done with the concept. It's the least of the mo- of the of the treated registers of his three, um, and it's sometimes difficult to find some really clean definitions of the real. I believe that they are there. They're about 340 pages into Ecre, and he really starts to pop here in his response to Hippolyte who is writing a response to Freud's 1925 essay on negation. So if you look at Lacan's response to Hippolyte, for instance, you can see some really nice definitions of the real. The real is that which is excised from the symbolic's founding moments. But where does he go with it after that? On to the next topic. So Xinghua, you asked the question that I think all readers of Lacan ask which is why does he talk this way? Why is he doing it this way? Is he purposefully making it challenging? Only so much as the New York Times makes a crossword puzzle challenging. Mm-hmm. Only in so far as the unconscious makes your dream enigmatic. Only in so far as the analysand shows up and creates a job for you. So he's very much working at. As an intellectual and as an artist, but always as an analyst training other analysts to do the careful work of listening to somebody who's kind of all over the place. And yet, at the same time, I would just submit this, and this is the primary reason why I have been working with Lacan the past several years is. I have yet to find anybody whose thought is more systematic and whose thought hangs together more tightly than Lacan's work. I know that's an odd thing to say, but conceptually speaking, this is right up there with Hegel. And Lacan knows it. So I believe that it's coherent despite all of the incoherence that you see when you look at a page of Lacan. And I would just hold that in mind
1: can i just ask something i just love the explanation um and i love the connection to surrealism that reminds me of you know in graduate school iowa we were always talking about orality versus literacy and how um literacy like the the one of those most read saints sages like jesus and Confucius, uh, they all have only spoken and we were only listening to the dictation of their disciples. And uh, it sounds like us reading Lacan's seminar is achieving a similar effect that although we're you know dominated by, oh, uh, we're reading the written word, which is actually you know, like surrounding the oral word, the, the spoken word. Um, and I think it's a great way. Maybe I, no, I, I I just think that this is very profound and maybe um, it would be a good idea for some of us to do our scholarship to the oral world like, you know, just in the class, just lecture and has the student to write down our speech and then publish it.
0: <laughs> I can tell you it's a much more efficient way to go, but um, I don't know about you, but it's pretty horrifying to look at transcripts of my own lectures. <laughs> it's so scary. You think it sounds good when you're doing it live, but then you sit down and look at the thing and and good lord, what a fool I am.
1: Well, because you applied so much censorship and critical, you know, ability when you're looking back yourself. Someone else reading your recording may found it brilliant. So maybe so. Well, I yes, I enjoy the last recording thoroughly. So I I'm sure you're not blabbering like a fool
0: seeing you're very kind what else is on your mind y'all please please um by all means chime in Some of you who are teachers, you know that after about three seconds of asking, does anybody have any questions? Mm -hmm. If nobody says anything, it gets hella awkward. And usually someone will say something ridiculous just to break the silence. Typically it's, can you please repeat the question or something along those lines? We are not that. So I'm totally down for the silence and absolutely willing to wait as you sift through your notes and look at the book and see what comes to mind. This is at once a bit of review, but also a chance for me to kind of take your temperature the old fashioned way and to see where you are with this material. Does that mean you want me to just blast forward? Thumbs up if you want me to just like blast forward. I mean, I'm happy to do some review. OK, all right, all right, let's do it, OK? So. <clears throat> we're here in chapters five through eight. Of seminar 10 and last time we were working with some weird modelings, early modelings of the graph of desire. So I'm going to try and do a screen share here. and. If this if this goes according to plan, you should be able to see me diagramming some stuff initially with a black screen and then with some colorful writing on it. And I'm not going to be able to see you while I do this, so let me know um, by words that you can see what I'm drawing here. Looks good. That? Triangle. Okay. Great. Thanks.
2: You all recognize this? Yeah. Thanks.
0: This is what we were toying with last time and we were trying to get at each of these terms. In order to ultimately give us a pretty good definition of this character right here. Because you'll recall what happens when anxiety besets the subject is that the desire of the Big Other, here symbolized by capital A, those of you that read French, you know why, becomes so overwhelming, so enveloping, so inescapable, that it effectively squashes our desire, leaves us with no breathing room, and the result is this feeling of anxiety. We're gonna dig into this tonight and in the coming lectures, but I wanna first make sure that we've got all of our terms straightened out here. So let's get down to this character here. What does this triangle symbolize?
2: The subject is a being of pure biological need.
0: Brilliant, thank you. Yes, here's need down here and you're right. It's kind of like a bio material. So this is the infant, is the, is the example we were working with last time, who's effectively a worm with arms and legs, zero motor skills, completely discombobulated, but that nevertheless is able to cry. Notice how I wrote cry here instead of wah. Technically, I shouldn't really write anything here because in this field, nothing is happening. Except noise. Until you reach big A, the only thing that's happening is noise. So I'll erase it. Are you all with me so far? Yes. All right. Now, big A here symbolizes the big other, as we've said. What else can you tell me about this big A relative to the child's cry?
2: I don't see anything.
0: Raise your hand, thumbs up if you can see the screen. Okay, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, let me, let me stop sharing and then I'll try and share again and we'll see if, if it works.
2: Um, I was using my iPad initially and I couldn't see it, so I had to pull it up desktop. So I don't know. Uh, I can see it on the desktop, but I couldn't see it on my iPad.
0: Okay, so maybe a computer is needed to do this. Rest assured, you have this in your notes too from last time. If you're here, so. And also note that I will be posting these images um, as well, so you'll have access to them. Sounds like it's working. So let's keep going here. Um, big other here, capital A in uh, a circle. What does it mean?
1: Primary caretaker.
0: Yeah, this could be our PC right here. Here's your primary caretaker. I love too that we have a slippage in English between caretaker and caregiver. This is the big other originally as a primary caretaker, typically a parent, but it could also be anybody. Big other here though for Lacan is also um, an inventory. And apologies for my handwriting, it's quite sloppy, but I hope you'll get the idea. The big A here represents a catalog or a totalizing set of everything that's possible in a situation. So the example you'll recall I used from last time was calling my brother up and asking him, what do I do if my kid starts to cry? And he said, well, there are really only four things that you can do. You can change a diaper, feed the child, et cetera, et cetera. These are all the possibilities in a given field of conduct. And this is precisely where Michel Foucault would determine the modern theory of power. Power is not forcing somebody to do something. It's about operating on the field of possible conduct available to them. So power means narrowing somebody's field of possibilities. Power works by saying you only have a few options when in fact you probably have 20. This is also a lesson that Alain Badiou would learn through Lacan in his development of set theory and his account for the state as a counting mechanism. It's about controlling the field of possibilities. The big other is this field of possibilities. It is a catalog of all the possible words in the English language, for instance. These are all the laws, the norms. That shore up. This conversation, Western society, whatever the hell you want. This is another word at this point in my career for the symbolic. So I think we could do some pretty good work over here. by making this the field of the symbolic. So what happens is the child cries out in a moment of pure need here down at the bottom, that meets this register here, which is the register of language or signification. That's what this arrow indicates. This is language. Beneath it is prelinguistic, you might say if you play with this arrow, and above it would be society, language use. And what happens, as you'll recall in this moment, is that the primary caregiver has the task of trying to interpret the meaning of the child's cry. So here we see a lower italicized S, meaning signified or meaning, according to the big other. So this is the decision or the interpretation of the big other. This is them deciding as a primary caregiver does whether to bring you a blanket first or a fresh diaper. This is the assignment of meaning to the cry. What this does effectively is it transforms the expression of need into this very important term for us, demand. A demand is a need expressed in language. And what's interesting about this model is that it is assigned to the infant by the primary caregiver. The transformation of need into demand is something that is done by the primary caregiver at this level of interpret- of interpretation. And now with that, we get to our key point here. What is produced from this activity? What does this S here signify to you? Split subject. You got it.
1: The subject after alienation
0: yes. What's wild is that this is a great outcome. Being divided is a terrific outcome. Having this split through you is a normalizing function in the Lacanian tradition. We'll come to that in a moment. Let's first focus on the worlds between which this newfound subject is split. One of them is the embodied part. Here we would see the enunciating subject. This would be a bio subject as well. So here we see the facts of need and biomateriality still contained in the subject. The subject is still embodied. They're still driven by certain elements. They're still a biomaterialistic being, but they are also now linguistic. They're now not only biomaterial, but also socio-linguistic. And this is the fundamental split. They are not only enunciating subjects, but also what Lacan calls grammatical subjects. Which is to say subjects that are dependent on and subject to the defiles of the signifier of language. So so to be a split subject is to have embodied impulses, you might say, but then also to realize that in order to get them met or addressed, you have to articulate them in language. And that's an important part of this whole process. Need expressed in language is demand. And once need and demand are brought together, you have this competing impulse in every subject. There's the biomaterial urge, let's say to shit when you need to. And then there's the sociolinguistic imperative on only shitting at certain times and in certain places. And we're usually torn between these two worlds. Now, not surprisingly, what interests Lacan here is not this very simplistic splitting of the subject and the two sides of it, but this element right here, the bar, which signals a gap Hold up, y'all. This My systems are getting a little slow here with this unit. A gap, a cut. What will eventually become objaya? It's an opening, a furrow. And for now, I want to give us a really clear definition of this objaya, This uh, this little a that plagues Lacanians left and right. It's not that complicated. Little a and quote me on this, is the minimum distance between two entities that allows them to remain distinct. That's all it is. It's an irreducible minimum distance between two entities without which you wouldn't have two entities. Instead, you'd have one. And that's what this barred subject is doing. So in other words, there are three elements here in the split subject. There's the sociolinguistic side of things and the biomaterialistic side of things, nothing new there, but there's this third element, this cut or this gap or this bar that allows these two aspects of the self to exist as distinct, to be experienced as distinct. And great examples of this abound in today's digital culture. I won't trot them out for you again, except to remind you of what it's like to sit on the toilet in your nasty pajamas, posting a beautiful picture of your handsome ass from last night when you were looking good on the dance floor to Instagram. There's your virtual self that occurs at the level of the selfie that looks great. This would be your grammatical subject. And then there's the grungy ass hungover, jammy toilet sitting subject, the embodied subject who felt the urge to publish such a thing. Okay, I'm gonna pause here for a second and open the floor again for questions before I save this diagram and move on to another.
1: May I ask the question again? Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I am two. So, one is a quick question, and the other one's a little bit de- bigger. So, first question is the split subject, um, the two parts that are separated by the bar. Is it fair to say that that's the difference between thinking and being in philosophy?
0: no in fact i would suggest that for lacan there's a different split if you want to if you want to play with the old philosophical one Mm -hmm. it would be the split between having and being this becomes very apparent when we start thinking about the phallus it's one thing to have the phallus it's something else to be it for someone else. So think about the phallus in this case very simply as just the microphone. It's better to have the mic than it is to be the mic. You feel me? Mm -hmm. It's much better to have the mic and to be able to drop it when you need to than it is to be somebody else's microphone, an object to be dropped at will. So for Lacan, the great split here is between having and being not between thinking and being. If he were going to even go down that path, he might say between speaking and being. But for him, speech, don't forget, is an embodied practice. Speech has as much to do with language use as it does with tongue movement. So I like the split between having and being as a slightly more productive one here. So we each have a grammatical self. You could even put the ego on that side of things but we each also are fundamentally human animals. Being is on the side of embodiment, the enunciating subject and biomateriality for Lacan. You could, if you were gonna push the Freudian categories and Freud's later development, you could put the id on that side. But I would, would, the split if you're gonna run it conceptually, I would say is between uh, having and being. I've
1: mm, never thought of that before. This I mean, becomes that, extremely
0: important when, um, when you get into Lacan's revision of pre-edipal triangles and the um and the Oedipal intervention of the quote father. Here, of course, we mean the subject position occupied by somebody who performs a specific function. And what the Oedipus moment signifies for Lacan is this moment of intervention where the child learns, and listen carefully here, that the primary caregiver does not have the phallus, and that the child cannot be the phallus for the primary caregiver. That'll make more sense as we get back into some of our other models from last time, but that's a good example of where you see the being and having dialectic worked out.
1: Meanwhile, thinking is probably the entire premise of both sides of the cut. You, it, it, all of this are thinking.
0: Well, and it's it's tricky, Xinghua, because you have to recall that what Lacan does with thinking is marches it back to this great critique of Descartes. Because what psychoanalysis introduces is the very real truth of thought, which is, We're always thinking precisely where we think we're not thinking, namely in the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Our best thoughts are occurring precisely in the field of human experience, where we don't believe any thinking occurs at all. This is Lacan's great corrective to the Cartesian belief that I think, therefore, I am. Right. So this is happening in the mid-50s. It's in his essay on the agency of the unconscious terrific essay on language by the way a lot of the modeling that you see in the graph of desire is being developed in that early essay from the 50s it's one that communication scholars usually have the most fun with it's the one also where he draws two perfectly identical doors and then writes ladies and gentlemen above the top and then shows how if you just switch the names the signifier determines the signified in that case the words above the door tell you exactly what's happening behind that door. So the signifier determines the signified. This is his inversion of Saussure. It's great work, but in that essay, you see him trotting out a major critique of thought. What Lacan's going to say is where you think you're thinking at the level of the ego, at the level of consciousness, you're in fact most ignorant. However, where you think you're not thinking, namely in the unconscious, this is your most brilliant insight. So if you want to play this out even further, you would say that um, the split in Lacan conceptually to work out here is between knowledge and truth. Knowledge is the field of the ego, of the grammatical subject. It requires language and coherence in order to operate. And ignorance, Lacan would say, is not the negation of knowledge, but its most elaborate form. Ignorance is the most elaborate form of knowledge we have. All of which he puts in opposition to truth. Everything that we know, quote, about ourselves at the level of conscious, intent, ego, etc., pales in comparison to the truth of who we are. As subjects of the unconscious. So knowledge and the ego go on one side and truth and the unconscious go on the other. So that's another way to run this out, Xinghua, without falling into the trap of thought. The first conceptual distinction again between being and having and the second conceptual distinction here between knowledge and truth. Yeah. Love it. At this point, what else is on your mind?
2: I can't help but think that this is like a metaphorical form of language. It seems so, I don't know, like when you're talking about the embodiment of the signifier, it seems, I mean, it seems very, you know, psychoanalytic in the sense of like images, but these images are not necessarily language and we're trying to put something on language, or we're trying to develop language, but there's we're still developing language around this realm that's more of an image. I don't know, that's just what I'm thinking, that it's very like a metaphorical language that we're trying to pin down
0: your choice of word here metaphor is so important because it's exactly what what's at stake in um, the development of desire as a defense against anxiety and here the metaphor in question is the paternal metaphor where the name of the father replaces the desire of the mother i'll leave that as a riddle for now but i just want to mark what desire is saying and say that metaphor is so the operative word here, we haven't even got to it yet. Brilliant. What else? Okay, then I want to go back to this screen. If no
1: one else is asking questions, can I ask one more question?
0: You get one more question. Just okay, thank
1: you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I have to leave um, in uh, 20 minutes or so. so. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> I we'll, won't well. bother
1: you too much. Um, so the graph of desire, the, the fancy one that you just drew, I'm wondering where, how does this fare in the picture of the relationship between desire and the law? Um, part of today's reading, I think at some point, he was talking about desire and the law, sort of like two sides of the same coin, or, you know,
0: something oh, like that. Akana is even more explicit. They are the same.
1: They are the same the thing. They're not the, even opposite of each other.
0: No, they are exactly the same. And the reason why they are the same is because they, same, they share the exact same foundation. Desire and the law are both founded on prohibition. They are founded on the no on the thou shalt not. Because that's effectively what happens when the primary caregiver turns to the child and says, okay, we're not gonna cry anymore. Let's use your big boy words. Use your words. I can't understand you when you're crying. That's effectively a big fuck you to the child. And it says, you don't get to cry like a baby anymore. Now you have to put it into words. Now you have to use language. And that is effectively a prohibition. The child's introduction into language functions the same way as the birth of the law. The tablets that Moses brought down were also structured on a logic of prohibition. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's barrel of water or whatever the hell is on the Ten Commandments. Who knows what the hell is on the Ten Commandments? Wait, but no, nope, the structure is one of prohibition, and that's why he connects law and desire, Xinhua. We're going to talk about that.
1: Okay, but isn't desire supposed to be transgressive of the law? So the desire is the negative of the law? Nope. The de- oh, it's not. It's actually the same thing.
0: No, nope, no. Nope. You spent too much time reading Deleuze. Desire is <laughs> okay, not transgressive. Desire is not transgressive.
1: And it's obedience
0: then? No. Oh, well, I guess in a kind of way, it could be obedience. Desire is a submission of sorts. <gasps> okay. Jouissance is, is transgressive. transgressive. It's All transgressive. I just posted. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. jouissance, you call on the graph of desire, can be accessed a couple of different ways, but one is from not desire, but the drive. In the upper right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire is the split subject in relation to big D, the demand of the other. That's Lacan's math theme for the drive. So what we've done so far here is we've talked about need, demand, or getting at desire. There's a fourth level beyond desire that my friend Bruce Fink puts as a traversing of one's fundamental fantasy something beyond desire and we call that the drive the drive gives us access to something that desire can't something more transgressive namely jouissance in the field of castration as we lapse into review
1: thank you thank you so much
0: yeah yeah so so don't don't worry and this is partly this is partly what what deleuze and Guattari are doing in capitalism and schizophrenia is they really want to unbridle desire from the law, and they want desire to be this um, unruly, endless, interminable enterprise, and that's just not how Lacan conceives of it. Wow! So, I mean, if you if if you all are really down and you were like, yo, I've been wanting to read Deleuze and Guattari for years, um, holler at me. We'll set something, absolutely. But that's where you would get theories of desire that would be a little more transgressive. Mm. Um, That's a post Lacanian term that I don't particularly agree with, but um, it's infinitely smart. Don't forget too that Guattari in many ways was competing for Lacan's job. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk more then about this graph. I'm gonna go to screen share one more time, just so I can put up um, a really sophisticated math problem for you. Are you all back? Can you all see this colorful thing again? Yeah. Okay. So you'll recall what I told you last time. One way that we were able to get at desire. Desire. Desire equals. Demand minus. Need. Desire is what's left of demand after need has been met. And the way I described that to you last time was a crying child, you show up with a blanket, the blanket warms the child, but something is left because you didn't just bring the child the blanket when you showed up, you also brought them care. You showed them love. You showed them in particular what it means to love someone like them. What's left of demand after need has been met is an insatiable demand for love and care. And this brings us to our first passage from the book, pages 64 to 65. So if you go there with me, let's look at it together. 64 to 65, bottom of page 64. Will somebody read starting with The Existence of Anxiety? Anybody at all?
2: I'll read it. The existence of anxiety is linked to the fact that any demand, even the most archaic, always has something illusory about it with respect to what preserves the place of desire. This is also what explains the anguishing side of anything that gives a response to this false demand in such a way as to fill in it.
0: Okay, let's pause right there. Thank you, Desiree. So demands are not meant to be filled in. Demands are meant to be partially satisfied. Partially satisfied because the need-based component of demand is the blanket, is the feeling of chill that the blanket addresses. It's the biomaterial side of demand. That part of demand, fill it in all you want, baby. That's the good stuff. But there's this other part of demand that according to Lacan, woe unto the primary caregiver who tries to fill in that part of demand. Woe unto the primary caregiver who believes that the blanket and only the blanket is the full extent of the child's demand. So that's what we're getting at here. There's a danger in trying to fill in the demand, whether that's by trying to love the child fully or more often trying instead to think that it was just a matter of a blanket. And so a good example of this, which is actually a pretty poor example of parenting in my view, is the parent who goes to the child when the child says, "Daddy, I'm hungry," and the ch- and the dad says, "The food is on the table. What more do you want from me? If you're hung, when you're hungry enough, you'll eat what's in front of you." And then the ch- then the dad might cave and say, "Okay, okay, this this dinner's no good for you. I got it. It's too spicy or whatever. What would you like instead?" The child's like, "I don't know." The dad's like, "Okay, well, what can we do here? We've got some chicken nuggets." We've got sandwich, we've got macaroni and cheese, and the child says, no, 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 none of those things, the child says, can satisfy their need. Because in this case, the child has confused their demand for love with their need for sustenance. And that's the game the kid is playing here, even though they don't know it. The reason why no food is good enough for the child is because what they're actually demanding is a dad who doesn't treat him like shit, but instead cares for them in a loving fashion. I don't want food. I want love. And you can see this in adulthood, too. Money can't buy me love. I don't want your money. Stop buying me presents. Stop bringing me stuff. That's not what this is about. You can't just show up once a week with flowers and pretend like we have a good relationship. Love and care means being there, in and out on a daily basis and so on and so forth. See what I mean? You can't equate a taking of somebody out to dinner as an expression of love. Love doesn't work that way. Okay, so Desiree, will you continue reading on to the next paragraph? On the bottom of 64, I
2: I saw this arise not so long ago in what one of my patients said a patient whose mother had never left him so much as an inch up in a certain age. Could it be put any better. She only ever gave a false response to his demand, a response that really fell wide of the mark because if demand is actually structured by the signifier, then it's not to be taken literally. What the child asks of his mother is designed to structure the present absence relation for him as is demonstrated by the origin of, for the game, which is a first exercise and mastery.
0: Okay, a let's certain... follow, if you don't mind again, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, but there's so much here that if we read any further, my brain is going to explode, okay? So let me just slow down here for a second and see if I can, can catch up here. So demand is structured by the signifier. Lacan says that, three lines up from the bottom of 64, because we know that demand is need expressed in language. It's structured by the signifier because the primary caregiver uses their understanding of, let's say, children, their knowledge of it, their inventory of all possible ways of treating a kid to answer the child's cry. That's a signification move. That's a move of interpretation where a world of meaning is brought to bear on a pre-linguistic, pre-meaning expression of need. So that's why demand is structured by the signifier, as we've discussed, and you can see it in the diagram in front of you. But that's also why it can't be taken literally. So Lacan's being playful here, Xinghua. He's messing around. It can't be taken literally, which is to say that if you hear demand, a demand for a blanket, even if the child has words and says, please bring me the blanket, you can't take it literally, which means you can't think that that's all the child is asking for. Every demand, in other words, is figurative in the sense that it always exceeds the expression of need because need is pre-linguistic and demand occurs in language so there's something more than need that occurs here so the because demand is structured by language it can't be taken literally is Lacan's point here so when the child asks his mother what the child asks his mother is designate is designed to structure the presence-absence relation for him, as demonstrated through the originative Fort dog game. Do you all remember and know what he's talking about with this Fort dog game business? Where's this coming from? Do you all remember this? Remember Freud's weird grandson, Ernst? Whose mom keeps like, Freud is like such a curmudgeon, man. So this is from Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and Freud's daughter keeps showing up, bringing the grandson, dropping him off, and then dipping. And Freud is like, what the fuck? What am I, your babysitter? I mean, he's not like that, you know what I'm saying? But he's definitely aware of the fact and wishes in the book even that the mom was a little more present. Now, what happens, what does Ernst do when mom drops him off? Do you remember this? So the deal here is Ernst is in a crib, okay? And this is before you had like, you know, cribs now, they're basically like cages, all designed just to keep kids from suffocating. In the old days when it was like super cold, a crib would like have a cloth lining going all the way around it. Hi, I'm back. Okay, so there'd be like a cloth lining that would go all the way around a crib. What was the word for this? There's a word for this. I forget what the 19th century called this thing. Well, the problem was that babies were rolling over with their limited motor skills and suffocating, right? We still don't know the origin of SIDS, but one of the things people suggest is it's a suffocation issue. Crib bumper? Crib what? Bumper? Yes, I think it is called a bumper or a bunter or something like this. There was a big
1: debate about it.
0: Yes. Mm Yes. So here's the deal. The kid gets dropped into a cage that has a blanket wrapped all around it. So he can't see fully outside the cage. But he has a toy in there. It's a spool tied to a string. Now, this is the kind of thing that an old Victorian-era baby might pull around behind them, I suppose a toddler instead, pull around behind them and pretend like it's a wagon. And they're the horse pulling the string, the little spools, the wagon. That's not what Ernst does with it when his mom drops him off. Ernst instead takes the spool with the string attached to it, holds the string in one hand, and throws the spool out of his crib, beyond his eyesight, so that the spool falls onto the exterior wall of the crib. And when he does that, he makes a noise that Freud interprets as fort, which is the German word for away. And then, in a moment of pure delight, Ernst pulls the string until the spool pops back up over the wall of the crib and lands inside, at which point he picks it up, brings it to him, and in Freud's interpretation as the primary caregiver, he hears the child saying, da, which for those of you who read Heidegger know is the basis for the word dasein, which means here and there, but in this case it means here. Most people think that Dasein is more about being, the sign part, and it's not. It's about the da part, da, da, da. Here, there, and like. So what Freud says here in this primitive game of fort da, is that the child is mastering at the level of a game what it can't control in the field of its own lived experience, namely the coming and going of the mom. So the reason why Ernst is able to withstand his mom's comings and goings is because he substitutes the spool for her. The spool is a signifier for her. He knows he can't determine when she's going to drop him off and when she's going to return. But when he's got that spool in a string, he's the master. He can control the coming and the going of this thing. And this is what gets him through it. Now that's what Freud does with Fort Da. What Lacan is doing with it here is something even more profound. The child asks his mother at the level of demand is to structure the presence absence relation for him. What Lacan is here getting at is, if you try and fill in demand, if you take it literally as a request for food or a blanket or whatever the kid says, You've missed what the child is also calling for, which is you, your care, your affection, your attention. The child isn't just saying, bring me a blanket. It's saying, bring me your love. Bring me yourself. Give me some of your time. Give me your attention. So the parent who tries to assume that the kid asks for a blanket and that's all there is to it, You've seen this example, the kid asks for something, the parent gives it to him, the kid's still crying and the parent says, what the hell is wrong with you? I just brought you what you wanted, why are you still upset? You told me this is what you wanted, I brought it to you, why are you still upset? Because that's not actually what the child is demanding or at least not only what the child is demanding. Desire is what's left of the demand for a blanket After the blanket has been given. And in this case, it is the demand for love. And not just once. But repeated acts of love from the primary caregiver. And that's the presence absence part. Come here, I want you. Is what the child always says when they issue a demand, whether it's for a blanket or food or anything. But the thing is, you can't just do that once and expect the child to feel held, contained, and supported. Which is why being a good parent means keeping it 300. You know what I mean when I say keep it 300? Cool, calm, collected. 300 because C for century equals 100, three Cs, cool, calm and collected. All of which, if you add them up, I would say suggest one thing. Good parenting involves consistency. You can't just love a kid once and expect them to feel it in their bones. Just like you can't learn a lesson once and pretend like you're not gonna make the same mistake again. I once asked a therapist, how long would it take to deprogram my dumb ass? And the therapist said, you have to do differently as many times as you did that created your dumb ass in the first place. Now, he didn't say dumb ass, he was much kinder than that. But his response was, if you really want to undo a habit, you have to act differently just as many times as you did to create the habit in the first place. And I was like, great. So basically, I'm halfway through my life now, and I'm not going to be done with this shit until I'm dead. And he was like, yes, thank you. That'll be $15 for your copay. It was a liberating moment, but I'm also $15 shy here. So the point here is that a good parent is one who doesn't just bring the blanket once, but brings it every time, consistently. That is how demand can be met but it does this by negotiating presence and absence. Presence is I'm there, here's the blanket, but I'm not gonna smother you. Now you've got your blanket, I'm gonna let you get back to it. Call me if you need anything. So just a quick example from last night. So my daughter is seven and she's learning to use conditioner. She has kind of like long, thick hair and man, it is a pain in the ass to brush this hair. After she gets out of the shower, it's just a pain. I gotta like brush it in little segments, I gotta brush it all the way up, all the way up to the top. But with conditioner, it's a game changer. But she doesn't know how to apply it yet. So we go in, I get her set with the shower. I get the temperature right. I get her washcloth out, I get her shampoo out, I get her body soap out, it's all right there. I said, you got everything you need? Yep, okay, call me if you need me. And then I close the door and I leave. And let me tell you what happens. First, I go and get a whiskey. Then I sit down. On, no, I don't get a whiskey, but sometimes. And then I go and sit on the couch. And as soon as my ass hits the couch, she says, Daddy. And I'm back up again in the bathroom. I'm ready for a conditioner. And then I, and then I help her condition her hair. And I say, okay, you're ready. Now you're going to wash your body, right? And we go through all the parts that need to be washed because she'll pretend like she's washing her body, but she doesn't do the job. So we get down to all the parts that need to be washed. Anatomically correct. She's down to it. And I say, okay, y'all set? Yep, all set. I leave and I close the door. And then I go get another whiskey. I'm just kidding about the whiskey part. But as soon as my ass hits the couch, daddy, I'm done. At which point my job is to go and get a towel off the rack and get her wrapped up hear whatever weird ass story she has about whatever she was thinking about or what she's been writing on the shower wall or something like this, and get her dried off, because otherwise she won't dry off. She'll wrap herself in a towel and then go get in her pajamas wet. So we have to like practice like drying off and all this stuff. And then she gets in her jammies and the night continues just like this. Call and response. The call says, come here, I want you. And the response is, I am now present. And then I leave her again, and then I come back. I'm the spool on the string. I'm the spool she doesn't need because she has me instead. This is what Lacan means about demand and desire. It doesn't mean the child doesn't experience desire. It just means that I have yet to slip into the misinterpretation of demand as need. There's always something more. And like a good desire, that something more is a repetitive request. You see? Desire is a wheel because it's repetitive. It's not appetitive; it's repetitive. I'll read the rest of this paragraph at the top of 65. A certain void is always to be preserved. And by void, he means lack, a part of demand that hasn't been met, which has nothing to do with the content. Here, the content is the blanket or the shampoo or the conditioner, whatever the kid calls for, neither positive nor negative of demand. The disruption wherein anxiety is evinced arises when this void is totally filled in. So here's how that would work. Instead of leaving her in the bathroom and closing the door, I take off all my clothes and get in the shower with her. Or I just sit on the toilet and wait for her. In other words, I don't give her that space. In those moments when I'm not in the bathroom with her, she is having a wild, complete, Frank Zappa-esque freak out. She is in her moment. She's singing songs. Last night it was, don't nobody wanna talk about Bruno or something about Bruno. What's up with this damn Bruno, man? She's all over this song about Bruno. She would not have done that if I were there. You know why? Cause she would have been in the shower wondering what the hell I'm doing in there. Wondering if I'm okay with how she's doing it. If I don't leave her alone with the washcloth, in other words, and let her wash her own body, she's gonna wash her body and think, am I doing it right? Am I doing it the way that daddy would want me to? That is anxiety. That is childhood anxiety, according to Lacan, because she is living her life in relationship to what she perceives to be not my desire, but my demand of her. See, I can issue a demand of my own which is exactly what God does in Ecclesiastes when he says, enjoy. Enjoy your wife, enjoy your food. Your life sucks and it's almost over, so enjoy. This is what Ecclesiastes is all about. That's why Lacan cues it up. Parents, big others, God is the big other, omniscient, omnipotent, can issue demands of their own. Now, this may seem tricky but I don't believe that it is. And one of our goals tonight is to really work this out. Demand can relapse into anxiety. And what I'm showing you is a basic way that if I were to be in the bathroom, the child would never experience the absence needed to be themselves, all the while knowing that I'm ready and within a a shouts distance. That's an important part here too. If every time I left and closed the door, she thought maybe I was just gonna grab my car keys and dip, she would also experience anxiety. So it's not about the proximal presence of the other. It's about the child's perception of the other as desirous or not, lacking or not, consistent or inconsistent. That's why I mentioned keeping it 300. Our algebra furnishes us with a ready-made instrument with which we may clearly see the consequences of this. Demand comes unduly to the place of what is spirited away, A, the object. If you try and fill in demand, you will spirit away the object cause of the child's own desire, their own creativity, and in its place, your own desire, will instill anxiety in them. That's what's happening on 64 and 65. Now, last time, we also did a lot of work with desire for, desire of, and desire as. That was another way that I tried to introduce you to this notion of desire. Now, I don't want to reinvent the wheel if you all feel pretty good about that. OK, any questions about desire for of or as? And for anybody who missed last time, if you don't yet have access to a recording of the lecture, for whatever reason, holler at me. And I'll gladly set you up with it, OK? Hey
2: Sam, can I ask you
1: like just a quick question on what you just went over with with the demand stuff? Yes, please. Um, in a sort of simplified form, would it be like? too simple to say that anxiety is sort of becomes this preoccupation with what the other demands. Or is it's demand right. there not the right word?
0: I don't think the demand is the right word there, but I really like your use of preoccupation. The reason why I say I don't think demand is the right word there is that one of the things the neurotic does. When confronted with the desire of the other, as we're going to see tonight, is to say listen. I don't know what you want, but I bet you do. So why don't you just tell me? Yeah. So if you recall the praying mantis example at the start of this seminar, the reason why it inspires anxiety is because you don't know what the praying mantis wants from you in particular, but you suspect it's something wrong, but you don't know. To take that experience of the other's desirousness and its enigmatic quality And funnel it through demand is a completely neurotic move, not a bad one. It's a great attempt by the neurotic to stave off anxiety by telling the other simply, listen, I know that you as the other know what you want. So why don't you just tell it to me so I can give it to you? That attempt to funnel the desire of the other into a demand that the other can issue me. provokes its own kind of anxiety. In fact, I would suggest that it invites the big other to operate sadistically, as we see on page 104 of the seminar. It invites the big other to say, not just enjoy, exclamation point, but, and here's how. Enjoy your wife, Ecclesiastes says. Enjoy your work, enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, God issues the demand and then details it. And that's a scary place to be. Because as we'll see as we dig into Seminar 10, when demand finally bumps up against the wall, in other words, when there's no more demand that the big other can give you, the only thing left is for them to demand a sign of your castration. We'll see that. It's in the book. Don't worry, we're gonna read the passage tonight. So I love the question about demand. And that's the reason why I said earlier that it's kind of tricky. Because on the one hand, funneling the desire of the big other through a logic of demand looks like a way to escape anxiety. And I'll show you why in a little while. But what it actually does is just postpone the inevitable which is that eventually demand runs out of steam. And the only thing left for the big other to demand of you is a sign of your own lack, your own castration. Which So it's not coincidental that circumcision also comes up here. I told you about Peter Griffin's tagline from Family Guy, shape up or show me your balls. It's a totally ridiculous line. Here, it would be shape up and show me your balls. But we were talking about desire. How are we so far? OK, I'm going to skip then desire four of an as. You can check that out in the first round of lectures. I wanna instead get back to this use your words model that we discussed. This moment has several names in Lacan's work and they're all mixed up and modeled and confused. I'm gonna clarify them as directly as I can. The paternal function is prohibition. It is that no. It's oftentimes described as the unary trait. It is also the name of the father, which don't forget in French sounds a lot like the nom of the father, the no of the father. Another word for this is castration. Another word for this process is alienation. The example we have of this is use your own words. When the primary caregiver tells the child to use their own words, they are issuing a prohibition. It's a prohibition against living life any longer without the intervention of language. Now, the way that we drew this out last time, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to save the screen we were just working with. Thank you all for bearing with me here. And then I'm going to erase this one and show you very quickly the model that we were working with last time. Okay, the one we were toying with was this pre edipal triangle. Where you had this maternal function. Emphasis again on this being a function and this being a subject position. Mother for Lacan is not anatomical in any way. It's a function. It's a subject position. And then down here you had the child. The child has desire for the mother, for the mother's care, for the mother's affection, not just her blankets, but notices that the mother, whoever plays it, has something else that they're interested in. This fee up here is called the imaginary phallus. It's whatever the child sees the mother figure also being interested in. It can be the car keys that symbolize her leaving for work. It can be the phone that she smiles at in ways that don't involve the child. And so what the child learns to do is identify with this thing, whether it's grabbing the car keys and putting them in the diaper, grabbing the phone and running off with it or hiding it, thinking that if I can approximate what else mother is into, I will eventually get her attention. It's this roundabout way Of the child hoping that they can be the imaginary object that satisfies maternal desire are you all with me so far please give me a yes because i can't see you yes thank you okay now along comes this paternal function This is all reviewed by the way, so it's in your notes. It's also in the lectures, but we're going to add to it in a traditional Lacanian way. Here we have the name of the father. I wouldn't get caught up in it because the key word here is no. This is prohibition. This is alienation and the like. And what it does is it effectively cuts in to this imaginary triangle. And says you child. Cannot be the phallus for her. Or him if it's a him, it doesn't matter. And you maternal figure don't have one. So again, here's that emphasis. The maternal figure does not have the phallus. And the child can't be it for the maternal figure. Now, the phallus here can be any object of desire. It can be the phone. It can be the car keys. The imaginary phallus is whatever you think somebody else is into. So if you think that I like jazz music, you might imagine all the different types of things that come with jazz music. And that would be something that you might think I'm into. Those are all imaginary objects. Each would be a phallus that you are imagining that you think I want. This is how desire operates. What happens, though, when the paternal figure shows up, usually, I would add, by invocation by the maternal figure, who would say something like, Just wait until your mother gets home. I'm purposefully scrambling that so it's not so heteronormative, right? Or if baby Jesus knew what you were just doing, think how proud he would be. It's usually the maternal figure that invokes the paternal function. That's also why Lacan plays with the name of the father. It's not daddy that shows up. It's the name of the father, typically as invoked by the maternal figure. Let's say the father figure is dead and the maternal figure says, oh my gosh, if your father figure could see you now. Think how ashamed he would be or proud or whatever the case may be. The most important thing here is what's happening inside this yellow box. This parens. Negative fee. Is a lack. It's in parentheses because you can't see it. Something that used to be here, something that used to be here is now gone. It's a blank. It's a void. It's a lack in the child's experience. It is also a gap. A cut. And a barrier. That allows the child some breathing room between themselves. And the desire of the maternal figure. Lacan, in this momentous 10th seminar, introduces a single letter to capture this gap or cut or barrier that allows the child to have some breathing room between them and the maternal's desire, which is voracious. This is the mantis. This is the praying mantis. The maternal figure is the praying mantis. And the job of the paternal figure is to impose some distance, barrier, or protection, allowing some breathing room between the child and whoever performs as their maternal figure. And he represents this with a single letter, A. A, objaya little object a is the minimum distance required for the child to experience a little bit of breathing room between themselves and the maternal figure. That is what little a means here. And in that gap, around that gap, the child develops desire. Now listen. Anxiety is what happens whenever that gap is incidentally filled or made to be full. If something appears in here. Some of you know Danish is one of my jams. This though I mean is just a zero. The number zero which is a signifier of nothing, which is not the same as a blind spot. Zero is a signifier that fills the gap that was previously there as the scribbled out yellow here. In other words, it's a signal or a signifier of the other's desirousness. If something pops up in this gap after the paternal function has done its thing, the result, is not desire but its antipode anxiety i hope that's clear this is the advancement that we're bringing to last our last graph of this element anxiety is what happens when a space that was should have been left blank and open and bottomless in order to cultivate desire has now been filled. And filled with a signifier of the big others desire. Which is what I which is why I write capital S and then with the barred A in parens. Whenever the big other issues a signal of their desirousness, the same way that horny praying mantis appears on the branch before you at the opening part of seminar 10. The result is not your desire, but instead your anxiety. I'll take this one step further at the risk of confusion. When Lacan says that anxiety means that lack is lacking, what he means is that that cut or that gap that is little a has been taken from you, and something else has appeared in its place. I'd like to suggest that what appears in its place is the child themselves. What the Big Other says is, you, as a split castrated subject, are the object of my desire. You're what I want. Which is why I say that demand always runs out of steam, and in its final flourish, is a demand for your own castration. Show me your split subjectivity, the big other says. That is a moment of anxiety. When the gap that would have cultivated your desire has now been filled by the big others desire for your gap. So if you check out page 25 really quick, just to blast back. I want to prove to you that I'm not just making all this shit up. If you look at page 25 in the fourth formula. Do you see the first line of the fourth formula on 25 little d and then a zero is less than zero colon little d of the barred other holler at me if you see that yeah okay on the left of that less than sign is the split subject on the right of that less than sign is the big other. This formula Lacan says is the truth of anxiety. But you'll notice the last paragraph of Section 2 on page 25. That O there in the formula, it's not an O, but a zero. It's the truth of anxiety, it's a zero. Which is why I write A zero here as the signifier that appears where minus phi as lack, gap, cut used to be. That zero is a signifier of the other's desire. The way we read this formula here, if you want to push it, is the zero on the right hand side of the less than sign is actually fantasy. Now, we know that fantasy is always on the side of the big other, but here, it's not fantasy, but instead something that has come in to replace it, which is a signifier of the lack in the other. If you've got the graph of desire in front of you, and you can get it pretty quickly if you turn to page four, this would be the right turn out of fantasy as split subject in relation to little a, up into a signifier of the borrowed other. That's what's happening here. That little right turn there is the moment of anxiety for the neurotic. But also, as we're gonna discuss, a moment of jouissance for the pervert. Really, that's what's at stake here, I think, is understanding perversion as much as the anxious experience of a neurotic. Usually, though, what you would have is fantasy and desire as a gap and defense against the desirousness of a big other, but that's not what happens here. Anxiety is what happens when the fantastical prop of desire, fantasy, and thus Objaya, completely fail. Lack is taken from you, resulting in this lack of lack we've been talking about. And as a result, you feel overwhelmed, inescapably enveloped by the presence of some desirous big other and anxiety is what proliferates thanks for listening to lectures on the con stay tuned for more episodes soon a big shout out to the artist jerry paper for our podcast theme music